April, 1805. Napoleon is master of Europe. Only the British fleet stands before him. Oceans are now battlefields. Welcome to Your Pick, a film podcast. I'm Geneva. And I'm Tatum. We are two friends who love movies and love sharing them with each other. Each week, we take turns picking a film that is close to our hearts and talk about why it moves us, to tears, to laughter, and everything in between. We celebrate the craft of filmmaking, as well as the unique and personal ways we find meaning in the movies we watch. Tatum, back again. Yes. Only a few days after we recorded our last episode, so... Yeah. I don't have a whole lot that I've seen in between, but uh, let's start with you. Is there anything you've been watching recently? Well, I know I haven't been watching any movies. I'm trying to think... Oh, so there's actually one one TV show that I've been keeping up with. Um, it So it's the new season right now. What season is it? Maybe four or five? Um, but what we do in the shadows is back... And I don't remember if I've talked about this show on the podcast before, but it is one of my favorite comedies of all time. It is an excellent, excellent TV show. Um, and this season really, really is great. I thought the last season was not necessarily my favorite. Um, there was a whole storyline <laughs> with Colin Robinson that I was not particularly a fan of that went on for like the whole season. Is he? Um, he's the uh, the energy vampire, he is right? The energy vampire, and he's my favorite character. So the fact that they did something with him last season that I wasn't particularly uh, interested in was a little bit of a bummer. Um, but this season is great. Uh, it's very very funny. Uh, we have lots of things going on with Guillermo, and he he has this great relationship with Laszlo going on. Laszlo is also. I forget the name of the actor who plays his character, but he needs to be nominated for Emmys for his performance because he is so good as Laszlo in this show. Um, the ways that he pronounces uh, words are like just so, so ridiculous. It reminds me of, um, what's her name? Catherine O'Hara in Schitt's Creek. How people always like just laugh at her intonations and how she says things. And I feel like this guy's performance is very much so the same. Is that, um, Laszlo, that's the Matt Berry character, I think, right? He's a British comedian. He's got this big bushy black beard. Uh, well, no, I mean, they both have big beards. Um, I'm not sure. Like I said, I'm not sure what his name is. Um, but, um, but yeah, it's it's very good. It's very funny. Uh, I would highly recommend people watch What We Do in the Shadows. It's an incredibly hilarious satire of vampires that are thousands of years old living in Staten Island. Uh, and yeah, craziness ensues. And they have a little butler who's called a familiar. His name is Guillermo. He's Yeah, it's great. So highly recommend What We Do in the Shadows. It is uh, an FX on Hulu show. So if you've got Hulu... You've got access to it. So check it out. That's it. That's all I've been watching. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of uh, shows that are returning and are on Hulu, Only Murders in the Building Season 3 just started. As of the time of this recording, we're a few episodes in. Uh, this season, they've brought in Paul Rudd and Meryl Streep. Do they? Sorry. Do they not release all the episodes at once? Is it weekly that they release episodes? It's weekly. Okay. Yeah. They released the first two I believe the first um, week, and then they've been doing one a week okay. ever since. 
Um, but yeah, so they brought on Paul Rudd and Meryl Streep as guest stars, along with several other recognizable faces this season. And I've got to say, so far, again, we're only a few episodes in, but this season's really returned to form for the show. I adore this show. I thought season two was good, but not quite as strong as season one, but I'm really engaged in season three. I was a little apprehensive when they announced they were bringing mm-hmm. in Meryl Streep because obviously she's a fantastic actor, but I feel like when she comes in in these sort of comedy guest roles, she can mm-hmm. kind of do the same thing over and over, at least to me. But that is not what she is doing here. She is putting in a performance. She is an actual character and what she is, is her character. Her character is basically a, um, <clears throat> so this season is all about Broadway. They're putting on a Broadway show. Uh, Paul Rudd is their like movie star, um, lead actor who is supposed to bring in the audiences, but then he gets murdered on opening night. And Meryl Streep is a career actress who, She's just been, she's never had a big break. She's just kind of been toiling away. And then Martin Short, who's the director of the show, discovers her and is like, oh my gosh, you're an amazing actress, That's which of course of she is because she's Meryl, Meryl Streep. playing that role. That's really funny. <laughs> I know, I know. And she's kind of, um, you know, she's very intelligent about her craft, but she's also a little bit unsure of her sh- herself. She's a little bit fluttery, but um, but also very sensible. And yeah, I really love her character so far. She is unexpectedly amazing chemistry with martin short which i would not think that's unexpected they're both incredible they're both incredible actors actors i just didn't expect them to have incredible romantic chemistry oh interesting okay yeah yeah so i always assumed martin short's character was gay but i also watched like two episodes of the first season and that was it so yeah it's it's he's not but it's it's an understandable um thing to think but yeah, so I'm very excited to see what they're going to do with this season, to see what they're going to do with this character. I'm very curious to see, I feel like right now the solution to who the murderer is is very obvious to me, hmm. but, you know, who knows, maybe they will surprise me. So we'll see. But yeah, Only Murders in the Building, season three, highly recommend as of now. Uh, the only other major thing that I, the new thing that I've watched this week is uh, 1980 movie um agatha christie adaptation because i'm still on my agatha christie kick um called the mirror cracked which is it's an adaptation of a miss marple story um honestly kind of boring not great but the main thing that was excited about watching it is the cast is insane because it's angela lansbury playing miss marple and then the oh, is this the movie you sent me a snap? I sent about me like, like it has this guy and this person. Pretty sure I sent you like five snaps about it because yeah. Yep. So Angela Lansbury plays Miss Marble, and then the <clears throat> the lead cast of characters is played by um, let me see Elizabeth Taylor, Elizabeth freaking Taylor, Rock Hudson, Tony Curtis, Kim Novak. Um, you've got Geraldine Chaplin in a supporting role, so it's just like an insane collection of glamorous classic hollywood stars who are none of whom i know who they are oh you, come on you know i knew i knew elizabeth taylor but you literally kept sending me these snaps and I, was like, <laughs> I love this for you i have no idea who any of these people are uh angela lansbury do you know uh, murder she wrote the tv series 
I know of it. I've never seen it. Okay. Yeah. She was the lead in Murder, She Wrote. So I guess this is kind of a proto Jessica Fletcher character. Tony Curtis was in uh, Some Like It Hot. We just uh, watched a few months ago. Oh, okay. He's the the non-Jack Lemon one, the one who dresses up as the sea captain and romances Marilyn Monroe. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. And then Kim Novak is um, the lead in Vertigo. Oh, okay. <laughs> I love how your response is, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's it's like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, at least I, okay, I do know some of them, I guess. Yeah. This is me being, just being nerdy about, um, you know, my favorite classic Hollywood character actors and lead actors and um and sometime we, someday we should do giant i really surprisingly loved giant um that is the third movie that james dean was in that is kind of um who's james dean i'm kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> tatum's just james trying dean. to get my goat now <laughs> <laughs> i think i watched james dean movies before you did maybe not i don't know i mean i kind of doubtful but um okay <laughs> I, I believe you i believe you <laughs> no i just i'm pretty sure i saw rebel without a cause for the first time when i was probably like i don't know 15 or 16 so oh yeah yeah i mean sure. you you, you might have independently me. also watched it before no you I saw it before me for sure okay. <clears throat> let's fight anyway. about it let's be competitive <laughs> i don't yeah i'm just anyway. kidding no that's sorry this is just me just geeking out and being incredibly nerdy about old hollywood stars that no one cares about um but anyway yeah the movie itself kind of boring but <laughs> it was great to see them just being all campy and over the top and having a grand old time so yeah love love that for them i saw this uh i saw this video on instagram the other day that was like let's not forget that one of the best cast movie cast of all time was spy kids 3 and it's this clip of the end of the movie where everyone is saying like to family to family to family like they're all putting their hands into a circle saying it and like each member of the cast has their like their shot where they say to family and i just love that the video was like yeah just a reminder the cast of spy kids 3 is out of this world <laughs> wait wait wait. I'm, I'm not even remembering who's in because obviously you got antonio banderas and carlo gugino well, as the parents and then ricardo montalban as the grandfather but who else is oh man did they bring I on mean, for the third it one it brings back people from the first one and the second one so it's got like steve buscemi it's got um the cast <clears throat> for the spy kids franchise in general is just insane they're good movies kids these yeah, days need they to watch are. them they are good i mean spy kids 3 is not good but right spy kids 2 is kind of a low-key masterpiece for spy my kids 1 and 2 are fantastic like mm -hmm. let's bring tony shalhoub steve buscemi alan cumming um i'm forgetting who else but there's like a bunch All of other of say to family in the end of <laughs> why are they like half of those people were villains in the the first two why are they they all family? turn good they all turn oh, good even sylvester stallone family. who plays the vi the villain in the third one <gasps> sylvester stallone good and says oh, to family right. at the end oh my god george lopez no i'm sorry that's that's shark boy <laughs> i mean you could tell me that george lopez was in those movies and i would believe you i mean they're both made by the same people they're basically the same movie yeah um, i feel like someone that Wild plays the president in those movies too, but I can't remember who it is now. Is there a president? I don't remember. I need to rewatch those movies. I loved them when I was little. Honestly, throw them on the pod. <laughs> Let's do it. Put them on the yeah. Put them on the roster. <laughs> Let's do it. Honestly, I would love to do. Spy Kids I would love Spy to rewatch Spy Kids. Yeah. Um, this is like the episode of tangents. I feel like we should cut all of this. <laughs> I know we're gonna do such. We're about to talk about such a long movie too. Yeah. But I sorry. What's the name of um 
Carmen and Judy are the, the kids' mm-hmm. names. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Carmen was just like, she was just the epitome of like cool, you know, oh, yeah. to me. She was like just the epitome of style. Like I just, I wanted to be her so bad. Yeah. I had a crush on her. I now realize. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, understandable. Um, and Judy is now married to Megan Trainer, which is crazy. Yes, which is but, nuts. Yeah. 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 What a world. Yeah. All right. Speaking of All right. worlds, let's go to the far side of the world. Let's go to the far side. All right. We need to wrap this up. So, okay. Getting back to the matter at hand today. Oh, wait. Are we recording a podcast? <laughs> oh, dang it. Dang. That was today? <laughs> All right. Uh, today on the show, we are discussing Master and Commander, The Far Side of the World, 2003 action-adventure film <clears throat> directed by Peter Weir and starring Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany. The film is set in 1805, a time when Britain was at war with France. The story follows the HMS Surprise, a British warship whose captain, Jack Aubrey, played by Russell Crowe, is ordered to catch or sink a French ship, the Acheron. The Acheron, which is newer and more technologically advanced than the Surprise, proves to be a much more dangerous foe than originally expected. A months-long chase ensues all the way down the coast of South America and into the Pacific Ocean. As Aubrey faces the normal challenges of running a ship and keeping order among his men, he is both supported and challenged by his friend, the ship's doctor and an enthusiastic naturalist, Stephen Maturin, or Maturin? I'm not quite sure how to pronounce his last name. Uh, anyway, he's played by Paul Bettany. The intellectual sparring between the two characters as they try to do their respective jobs gives much of the film its charm. At the same time, they are both drawn into the position of mentors, trying to leave a legacy for those who come after them. Aubrey in training the young officers under his command, and Maturin in trying to make contributions to natural science while encouraging a young midshipman's interest in biology. The screenplay for Master and Commander, which was co-written by Weir and John Coley, is an adaptation of a long-running series of novels by Patrick O'Brien. These novels detail the exploits of Aubrey and Maturin during and after the Napoleonic Wars, and they are known for their lovingly detailed evocation of life in the British Navy in the early 1800s. Weir took similar care in recreating the world of the HMS Surprise. The cast was trained in the minutia of life aboard a warship, and the film gets much of its texture from the documentary-style inclusion of little details about daily chores and activities. With the support of Tom Rothman, an executive at Fox who'd been trying to get the Patrick O'Brien novels adapted for years, Weir was given a massive $150 million budget. This allowed him to acquire reproduction ships and scale models that he shot in both huge tank sound stages and at sea, possibly the last time a production of this scale could do this many recreations without the major use of CGI. The production was also able to film for a few days on location in the Galapagos Islands. One article I read says that this, they were actually the first non-documentary crew to film there. Hmm. Um, the film itself at the time was not a huge, not really a hit, but um, it's kind of grown in popularity and it's sort of become a beloved object in the years since. Um, I certainly love it. Wasn't it a financial flop? It, yeah, it. I don't think it lost money, but it didn't oh, make really? much more okay. than its budget. Okay. Yeah, it definitely was. They were hoping that it would be a huge hit and would kind of jumpstart a franchise, and it did not. Which is very unfortunate because I would have loved to see more <laughs> movies with this cast. But they definitely I mean, ended it with like a, oh, this is open. There could be another one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, again, it's based on a novel series, so. You know, the the precedent is there for it to be. Here's one exciting incident in the lives of these people who have very eventful lives. Um, But yeah, that did not happen. 
But yeah, I remember I did not see this movie in theaters, but I remember <laughs> my first hearing about it from my mom who went to see it with my dad on kind of a date night. And my dad is a huge, like, you know, British Navy tall ships. Like he, <laughs> you know, he just, it's, it's a very, you know, very stereotypical kind of dad interest, but he's like, he's read all about them. He'd read all the Patrick O'Brien novels. He loved all of that. Oh, wow. He's read all the books. Crazy. Oh, yeah. Mm hmm. Yeah. Um, but I just remember my mom seeing it and coming back and saying, I actually really love this movie. And she was very surprised because she does not any war movie, action movie, any movie where there's no women, no kissing, like she's she's gonna tune it out <laughs> generally. Um, there speaking. are women in this movie that sell them things from a little boat. <laughs> um, but yeah, she she loved this movie. She was completely engrossed. And so that spoke to me about like, you know, this is a movie that can transcend even um <clears throat> like the the audience that you would think would be for it like this is a, a movie that can speak to a lot of different types of audiences so i don't remember exactly when i first saw this movie i was probably in high school or so we'd maybe rented it and put it on and yeah i loved it i was entranced i, I was so in on it the characters are so vivid the the things that they go to go through <clears throat> are so interesting um you feel so so much for them at different points in their journey um, and I rewatched it last year and loved it again and thought this is a movie I should be rewatching a lot more than I currently am. And also this is a movie I really want to talk about. So yeah, Tatum, what's your history with this movie? And also what did you think on this watch or rewatch? Yeah. So this is a movie that I have not looked into rewatching for a while because when I first discovered this movie, I watched it all the time, like all the time. So much so that I was like, do I even need to rewatch this movie before our podcast discussion? Um, so this movie was was very, uh, it was a big part of my movie going ex or movie watching experience when I was younger. Um, I will say the reason I started, the, the, the reason I watched this movie the first time was because Billy Boyd is in it, who plays Pippin in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And I was obsessed with Lord of the Rings slash still am slash always will be. But I was like, I love Billy Boyd. I want to watch what he's in. And he's in this movie. And I also was really um, a fan of Russell Crowe at the time because of Gladiator. Um, and um, is Gladiator a movie that we ever might do on the pod? Um, Maybe. I mean, yeah, that's one I haven't rewatched in a very long time. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like it. I feel like I'd have to rewatch it in order to find out if I have enough to say about it to actually do a podcast episode on it. Um, because that's another movie I've seen so many times. That was on TV like every weekend for ten years. I feel like it was always on TV. Um, great movie though. I know some people don't like it. I think it's a good movie. Um, I would like to talk about this a little bit at some point. We don't have to do it right now, but just the crazy run of successful roles that Russell Crowe had at this time that then just kind of fizzled out. Um, but man, he had like a six year stint where everything he was making was like Oscar, 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 or Oscar worthy, Oscar worthy, Oscar worthy. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I really like this movie. I really liked it growing up. Um, I think, I think it's incredibly well made. Um, the way that it makes, me feel like I know how to operate this type of ship is crazy because I definitely don't. But I watch this movie and it feels like 
I think you mentioned it. It almost feels like a documentary kind of explaining to us and showing us what this world is like. It feels very real. This this world doesn't feel like I'm watching a story of something that doesn't exist. It feels, um, yeah, it feels real. Um, we can go into this a little bit later if you want. I'm just going to say it because I'm interested to see your reaction, honestly. But this movie is a sports movie. Uh, and I know you say you don't like sports movies, but this is a sport movie. Um, interesting. I, I'm, I'm open to hearing the argument. It's got, it's got all the beats. It's got all the same, you know, it has a couple added things that are not specifically the sports movie genre, but like, it's a sports movie. Uh, so yeah, we can talk about that if you want, but, um, I'm, I'm very, I'm very much so wanting to make that argument and to hear your reaction. Um, but yeah, this is a great movie. I, I, for some reason, I felt like watching it again, I thought it was going to feel really long because I was like, okay, I've seen this before. I know it's a long movie, but I watched it. I was like, that flew by. That movie did not feel long to me at all. And it's over two hours and it's really just people on a boat the whole time. So the fact that a movie of that little, just like not many locations and they're on a boat and the fact that it's that long and I didn't feel like it was long. I just think that's a big accomplishment. So yeah, I think, like I said last week, uh, if you hadn't chosen this movie to talk about, I would have at some point, uh, I think we both love it. Uh, but you beat me to the punch and I'm glad, uh, I'm, I'm here to talk about it. I think it's going to be, things going to be good. Yeah. I'm, I'm really glad you brought up the pacing because I had a similar thought when I'd rewatched it this last year is, this movie is so well paced and it really, really moves. And I think that's a, a testament to the script. I think they do such a good job of setting up a whole lot of different characters and plot lines at the very beginning. And then the rest of the the structure of this movie is largely very episodic. You know, they kind of go to one place and something happens with a couple of characters and then they resolve it and then they move on to the next challenge and something happens with a few characters and they resolve it. But all the, all the way through, it's weaving in these running plot lines about the relationship with, between Aub- Aubrey and Maturin. And actually I'm going to start calling them Jack and Steven because I don't know how to pronounce his last, the last names. Um, yeah, the relationship that the two of them have, um, the, the chase with the Acheron and what's going on with that ship. And, um, People like Blakeney and Pullings who are kind of in the background, but will step in occasionally and have things to do. And then it all comes together in this really, really impressively staged battle that is very exciting, um, very clear in the sense that you always understand what's happening, but it's also very chaotic and you really do feel like you're in the midst of it and there's splinters of wood flying everywhere and you're trying to figure out who's the enemy and who's your friend and who to stab and who not to stab who's the doctor who's not a doctor Mm-hmm. yeah exactly and yeah just watching this movie too um i mean i mentioned before about the all the practical sets that they use it really did make me nostalgic for this type of filmmaking that i think this type of filmmaking that happens on this scale, which is just so rare nowadays. I mean, you have a few people, you know, Christopher Nolans and whatnot, who are really committed to that kind of practical storytelling. But I, I was mentally comparing it as I was watching it to a movie called In the Heart of the Sea. Um, mm-hmm. Ron Howard from 2015. Film. Ron Howard film, yeah, which I attempted to watch um, a year or two ago. I don't think I made it the whole way through. And that movie, it's not a it's not a terrible movie or anything like that. There, there are good things about it. But one thing that really turned me off is 
how obvious the CGI is of the ocean of the the whale. I mean, obviously you need to CGI something like a whale, but <laughs> it no, just we're going <laughs> to yeah. find a real whale and train it. Get a practical whale, we're going to train it. <laughs> but um, even just a, a moment where they're all kind of stranded in a lifeboat in the middle of the sea, and it is so incredibly obvious that it's a CGI sea and everything has been kind of color corrected to death. You know, this movie, it's it's shot on film. It looks gorgeous, but the color, if there's any color correction going on, it's not obvious. Everything looks very, very natural. And it's just really good lighting and staging and camera work. And you really just feel all of the love and the care that was put into this movie. And I think that really pays off in how real and textured and lived in this world feels like yeah i mean i think i'm desperately desperately that's a very extreme word um yeah i'm i'm definitely nostalgic for that type of filmmaking as well i mean those are the types of movies i grew up with i mean lord of the rings is incredibly practical i mean obviously there is cgi but um and more so as the series goes on but I mean, so many of those sets are like miniatures and and full scale sets and all of these things. And it's like nowadays people just stand in front of a green screen, you know, and and I appreciate just having that dynamic of just practical things and knowing that it's real, which I think is why, you know, a lot of people really like Tom Cruise movies, because we know that what we're seeing is even though him putting his life at risk, but like we know that it's practical what we're seeing and um I just think that's really cool. And I think we see some of that with some of Denis Villeneuve's films. Um, and I think James Cameron sometimes, maybe not, not as much anymore. But again, going back to that nostalgic, like when James Cameron made this Titanic and they had this big pool and like all of these things, um, you really can tell it is a difference. And I think, um, I don't know, it's just a lot easier to be invested and engaged when things, when, when you know that they're real. So, yeah. yeah, there's this gorgeous shot, uh, I think, kind of early on in the movie where you see um, Jack and Lieutenant Pullings, who's a, his second in command, and they're at the top of this mast and they're just kind of they're just kind of hanging out and enjoying the breeze. And then the camera pulls out and you see they are really on the tallest, the top of the tallest mast in this massive ship that is really sailing through the ocean. And it's actually the two actors up on there. And just the sense of excitement and thrills that that creates, and then they're they're kind of racing each other down the the um, the rigging, and they're you know it's very playful, and you just get a sense of you know what a joy it is to be at certain times on this ship, and um, to be like as an actor, you know, being able to do these things physically for real, and and how that can translate. Like I, I was reading, I read a um, like a 15th anniversary retrospective article on the making of this movie, and James Darson, Darcy, who plays Pullings, was talking about that filming that moment and how they had these harnesses they were supposed to wear, and Russell Crowe was like, "I'm not wearing my harness," and so he climbed up without the harness and then put it back on on top, and then he was like, "Actually, I think this show is too much," and he took it. He had James Darcy help him take it off and James Darcy's like if he dies am I am I gonna be blamed for this but that energy like it how you know I I fully support safety measures and actors wearing harnesses but the the energy that comes from having two actors physically on top of the the mast in this movie is just something that it's it's very difficult to replicate yeah for sure I don't I don't think that would happen nowadays uh but 
someone would be sued and fired and whatever. And I think that's a good thing that people don't really do that anymore. Um, but yeah, I, I see what you're saying about that kind of creating a different sort of energy. Yeah. All right. Um, well, I was thinking, because as I said, this is a very episodic movie, and I think I want to go through the plot kind of bit by bit, but we can kind of talk about it and maybe um, each segment will, will lead us into larger conversations. All right. So to start with in this movie, we actually start really, which I think is such a smart choice. We start almost immediately with an action scene. So we get the opening scroll where we establish the fact that this is the Napoleonic Wars, England versus France. Um, the surprise, Captain Aubrey have been given these orders to track down the Acheron and um, basically take her or sink her. And we start with this um, bell being um, chimed as the, the night watch is changing guard and there's this uh, officer named Hollem who is looking out into the fog. It's, it's night, it's very foggy, and he thinks he sees a sail, but he's not quite sure. And so they beat to quarters, which is basically get everyone ready to their for their battle stations. And Jack comes and he checks, and he's like, um, at first he doesn't see anything, but he tells Hollem, um, you did the right thing by summoning me and, and getting everyone on their guard. But then he checks again, and the ship comes in, the Acheron is here, they've surprised them, and all of a sudden it's just chaos, and there's cannon fire, and everyone's fighting, and people are getting um, wounded and ripped open, and Aubrey's issuing orders, and basically the surprise just completely gets her ass kicked. You know, people are, um, they have, they finally manage to, to flee into the fog and get away, but there are a lot of deaths, there's a lot of wounded um, people down below, Stephen is is having to patch up as many people as he can. Um, we during this sequence, so we meet Jack, we meet the captain, um, we meet Stephen, who's the the ship's doctor. We also meet two characters who will be important later. So we meet little Blakeney, who is a midshipman. He's like maybe ten or twelve years old. He's just the cutest little boy, and um, he ha he's an officer on the ship. He's referred to as Mister Blakeney, but he's just this this child and this is basically his first voyage so jack um is like a friend of his father and promised to take care of him and then we meet hollem who is um an older officer uh, but is the same rank as blakeney he's also a midshipman and he's very unsure of himself and of um whether he's doing the right thing at any given moment so um yeah the um afterwards they're they're kind of patching up the ship and the officer's talk about the fact that the Acheron is a uh, it's a newer ship and it has longer range guns and the way it's built it's going to be faster than the surprise the surprise is a bit older but Aubrey is very offended when they call it aged he's like no 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 she's not aged she's in her prime you know, he really he kind of grew up on the the surprise we find out and he's very attached to it um, but yeah so Tatum any thoughts on the way this movie opens and the the way that all of the elements of the the ship's kind of mini world are set up. I mean, wow, so much happens. Um, I mean, I think kind of like I like I said before. I mean, I really like how this movie does a good job of helping me understand what life on a ship like this is like. Again, you know, I watch a scene like this and I'm like, oh, I feel like I understand how a ship crew works and I could just walk on there and know what's going on which like again I couldn't 
But I feel like after watching this opening sequence, it's like we kind of see what they look like when they're just kind of just on the ship. And then once the once the um, the phantom shows up and they're, you know, hard quarters or whatever, then we see what they're like when they're in battle and what their roles are and how this works. And, you know, we see them as the ships getting hit with water. They're pumping the water out from underneath. And then, like, we see all of these different tactics and different ways that this boat functions. It's not just, oh, let's shoot cannons back at them. There's a lot more going on because um, there's that's how a ship functions. So, yeah, I just think it does a really good job of of just setting the stakes from from the beginning and the introduction of of Captain Jack is super cool how you know we don't see him at first and all of a sudden he hears like you know hard quarters and he has this look where the camera kind of you know tilts up at him and then he walks out and we're following him with the sort of hero introduction yeah with his little ponytail and he's like you know tightening his belt and all of that stuff um Yeah, and it really just gives us an idea of establishing rank and how they respect each other and how everyone's got a specific role. Um, Yeah, I I think it just does a good job of establishing the stakes and and the characters and and all of that stuff. I mean, it's a very gripping... I, I noticed that when you chose this movie, you wrote in our document that it's adventure. And I think it kind of is, but also watching this sequence, I was like, this movie's kind of an action movie. Like, it it... If, at least for me, not that adventure is an inaccurate word. Also, not that it matters. But I just was watching. I was like, I don't know. This is kind of just like an action movie, you know? And it's got really great action and practical effects. And I think um, this first scene kind of kind of shows that and really proves that. So the action is great. Yeah, yeah. I definitely agree that this is... I think there are many genres that this could fall into. But action alongside adventure, I think, is definitely one of them. Yeah, I... Like you say, this opening sequence, it establishes the stakes and it, in the sense that it really establishes the fact that this is a ship of people who are on their own. You know, they're, they're going to be stopping at different ports to refit, but there's this certain level of self-sufficiency that they need to have. And every battle, every skirmish they're going to have with the Acheron is going to cost them. Um, it's going to cost them time to, to stop and make repairs and acquire the wood they need and physically pump out the water. It's going to cost them men, you know, who are killed or who are wounded and who are physically losing parts of their bodies. So an important thing that happens early on is that in this battle, Blakeney gets a really bad wound in his arm and it's not healing right. And so they need to amputate it. And for the rest of the movie, little 10 year old, 12 year old Blakeney is just has one arm and you know that that's just the reality of living in this situation and and this being your occupation is that um it is so physically taxing and physically dangerous and that's the the mindset that they're all operating under uh, under every minute and every time they worry about whether the Acheron is going to come out of the fog and surprise them again these are the the costs that they're thinking about yeah i mean Going back to a little bit of just who and how this establishes, you know, just what's going on here. I think in addition, we also see the dynamic between Jack and Stephen almost from the very beginning. We see Stephen kind of stepping in as this doctor role. And it's it's very clear that he is the one who knows how to do this. Like he is the authority in this area. And yes, Jack might be the captain of the ship, but like. Steven has a a very big, important role as well that other people respect because no one else on the ship can do what he does. 
And um, yeah, I just think it's cool to just establish kind of how they're both really important, how they're both very highly respected, um, but also how they have a cool relationship with each other. And I think, I think this movie does a very good job of making Jack feel like, you know, yes, he's, he's kind of a tough guy because we know that he has to be in order to like have the respect of his men and do his job. But he's also a human being who has a heart and cares for people. And, you know, we see later on that develop more and more. But in this opening sequence or opening, you know, however many minutes it is, we learn about Jack and his connection to Blakeney. And, and we see how much he cares for him and wants to make sure he pulls through from this injury and, and all of these things. Um, yeah, I just... Yeah, I, I just wanted to mention that. I just really like how in the midst of all of this action and setting up kind of the dynamics of the world, we also are learning so much about these characters. And there's a lot of characters in this movie. And I think, I don't know, I think it's a testament to how, to the quality of this film that I feel like, at least for me, with every single one of these characters, no matter how minor they are, I care about them. And I feel like I understand who they are as people. And like this cast is huge. It's, you know, obviously some people have larger roles than others, but I don't know the fact that maybe if I were to count it, it would be like 15 plus people. But the fact that I feel like I know who all of them are, who they care about, why they care about it, what their role is, what their relationship is with other people on the crew. Yeah. It's just, it's really a testament to the, the screenwriting, I guess, but yeah. 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 I'm so glad you brought that up and, and brought up the how early the re- relationship between Jack and Stephen is established. Like you say, they are both extremely important and very knowledgeable and kind of have absolute authority over their respective domains. And that gives them respect among the crew, but it also gives them respect for each other. And the fact that Stephen is able to push back on Aubrey as often as he is is a testament to the long-standing friendship they have, but it's also, I think, a testament to the fact that he is so indispensable on this ship and he is so um, critical to their ultimate survival. And so that gives him a, a leeway and so they can have this um, relationship where Stephen is often, you know, generally not publicly because that's not good leadership, but privately he is often questioning or pushing back on the decisions that Jack makes and Jack listens to him and respects him he doesn't necessarily always agree but um you know they have this this mutual respect and this mutual leeway to push back on each other yeah i wonder i don't know if you came across any of this in your research but i wonder how this casting process went and how much their chemistry on screen has to do with like their personal relationship because i don't know if you've seen the movie a beautiful mind but A Beautiful Mind came out, I think, two years before this movie, and they both kind of act next to each other in that movie and have a very interesting relationship in that film. And so I find it to be, I wonder how the process of them acting together in that film led into them acting together in this film. But you can tell, whether it's on screen or not, like there is a chemistry between these characters that helps you feel like they do actually have history, you know? Um, And I think that's really cool. Yeah, that's a really great point. I did not actually find anything, and I I, I didn't do a ton of research, but uh, the one main article that I was looking at for background info did not mention anything about the casting process, so that's a great question. Have you seen A Beautiful Mind? Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yes. So, oh, actually, actually, on a similar note, just to note that we see here Stephen performing brain surgery on a wounded sailor and plugging up the hole with an iron coin, um, which is just very, like, like mind blowing that they're. I, I mean, people have been performing brain surgery for millennia. But it's just, I, you probably don't see that every day. And so everyone gathering around to watch it is just Are them his brains, cool. Doctor? No, that's <laughs> no. just blah, 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 blah. That's just blood. Here's his Those brains. Those are his brains. <laughs> <laughs> and so you, you get the sense, too, of why Stephen would be so respected among the crew as well. Is like, he does this extremely delicate surgery. He's literally performing brain surgery on a moving ship. And it works. The guy survives. He holds fast. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And we also see, too, during this section that the two of them will regularly get together and they'll play music in the evenings, which is just a lovely little detail. Can I just say, uh, let me let me pull it up real quick. But there was uh, there was one review on Letterboxd that I really liked. Which one was it? Hold on. I'm pulling it up. Um, oh, Great movie about two guys who just want to have a jam session. <laughs> That's amazing. I love I that. saw I saw a meme like I said, film Twitter has really reclaimed this movie. I saw one recently that was like, um do you know how there's an article that was going around that's like the cure for male loneliness is this thing in this? It was like a picture from Master and Commander and it said the cure for male loneliness is uh sailing setting off to the high seas with a bunch of your bros or something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have no choice. Figure it out. So the next section of the movie um, is now that they're refitted and they're back on their way and they're they're pursuing the Acheron. So a couple of sa- sailors actually, uh, there's this one sailor who saw the Acheron being built because just by chance he was in, I think they said it was Boston where it was built. So he creates this little mock-up for uh, uh, Jack to have so that he can see kind of how the Acheron is different from the surprise and why it's able to be faster and um, uh, even though it, it is more heavy than the surprise. And so Aubrey kind of has that on his desk as like a you know symbol of his obsession through the rest of the movie. I love that little line where Jack says something like, um, oh yeah, modern technology. This is the, this is the yeah. age we live in now. What an age we live in. Yeah. <laughs> like, wow, that's so funny. But it is so cool. Like this, I mean, this is such an interesting era in history and especially with the through line of uh, Stephen being so excited to get to spend time in the Galapagos Islands and look at all these bugs and iguanas and birds and things that no one's ever seen before. Iguanas don't swim. These ones do. What? He's just so excited about it. But it is this, you know, it's this late 17 or early 1800s enlightenment, you know, time where it feels like the world is being recreated and, you know, science is being revolutionized and everything is, um, you know, every possibility is open. Like, it's just, yeah. It's, yeah. It's an interesting, exciting time. Um, there's a great... Um, scene at where the officers get together at dinner and um they're all very kind of you know they're all just merry and they're just having fun um aubrey does his two wives and sweethearts may they never meet um toast which everyone finds hilarious they find his jokes to be way funnier than they actually are the lesser of two weevils is really not that funny of a joke but he everyone is absolutely 
on the floor it's really rolling not that funny. when he makes that joke. And Steven's look of complete bafflement is so funny. Yeah, I think it's very obvious that everyone at that table has had like three glasses of wine and they are very tipsy and just everything is funny to them. And Steven's just not quite on the same page. Yeah, yeah, for sure. They've also been out at sea for a very long time. <laughs> you know, you got to find your enjoyments where you can. Yeah. Um, they stop at a, a trading port and they kind of, you, you get the one glimpse of women that you see in this movie very briefly, um, from the indigenous women who are at the, the trading port. Um, but then they're off to sea again. Um, they have another run in with the Acheron though, cause they, the Acheron yet again is able to kind of sneak up on them and, uh, come up on them unexpectedly. Can I just say my favorite line in the movie? I don't know why it's my favorite line. Maybe it's the way that he says it. I don't know. But when Jack says, this is the second time you snuck up on me, there will not be a third. I love that line. It's so good. So badass. Yes. And the fact that we have all, I never thought that looking through whatever you call it, it's not a telescope, but whatever the term is, I, I never telescopes. Are, they oh, not are telescopes? they called telescopes? I don't know. I'm Maybe like, there's some more technical term. Yeah. I'm like, telescopes are just for space, right? I don't actually know. Um, I'm just going to say scope. Um, <laughs> sure. I, I never thought that someone looking through a scope could be so badass. But like whenever he's looking through this scope, the way that they like shoot him from different angles, standing on the front of this ship. And then we have sequences where he's looking through the scope and then he sees the captain of the other ship looking back like... I don't know. I just think that he's he's such a cool he's such a cool guy. And I think like this is the type of person you want to be the captain of your ship, which is why he's the captain of their ship. And that's why he's called Lucky Jack. Like he just is so good at what he does and so confident in the decisions that he's making. And just like, yeah, he's really cool. <laughs> anyway, that line is just really great. I I just yeah, I really like that line. Yeah, it's great. They do such a great job of establishing in this movie how how Jack's reputation among his men, you know, he has so much, res his men respect him so much and it's an earned reputation. Mm -hmm. You know, he really is that brave and that resourceful and he gets them out of so many scrapes and he knows when to engage and when not to engage in order to protect his men. And yeah, the, the, the movie just, it does su such a great job of making him seem heroic but also making him seem human. Yeah. Um. In the, he, you know, he has all of this love for his men, even though he can get, you know, he's not perfect. He can get blinded sometimes. And this is kind of the section where Stephen calls him out a little bit, where Jack is starting to get a little bit obsessive about wanting to track down the Acheron because he's, by this point, I think he's basically already exceeded his orders. Her, his orders were just to go to as far as Brazil, and they're already way past that. And he's. They're like in the freaking Antarctic at some point, yeah. <laughs> like, or Arctic, whichever one it is. Antarctic, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's um, he's kind of like, he's trying to psychoanalyze the captain a little bit. He's like, who is this guy? How is he able to sneak up on on me so many times? And I love that moment where Stephen responds, "He fights like you, Jack." You know, he's just like, this guy has you know all the the skill and resourcefulness and skill that you see in this guy you have that same you have those same powers you know like he has so much confidence in his friend yeah i mean just speaking of his you know kind of his respect that he has from his men i think we really see that play out in the sense that the fact that he which 
I don't think with where we're at in terms of what we're talking about, maybe we haven't hit this yet. Maybe it happens after this. But the fact that, you know, they lose a crew member and Jack is the one who has to make the order of cutting the rope. And he's the one. It reminds me of a Game of Thrones when Ned Stark is like the one who passes the sentence should swing the sword. Like it's just necessary that the person who has to make that difficult call is the one who actually does the act. And the fact that he's able to do that and then he says later on, like the crew won't take it very well. He was very popular. The fact that the crew does not rise up against Jack because of that, I think is a, is a big deal. Obviously they take it out on someone else. Um, but, and then Jack even takes Hollum under his wing and, you know, he just sees, he sees the value in these people. And, um, yeah, anyway, I'm just going, I'm just kind of rambling, but yeah, I don't know. He's just, he's a very good, he's a very good leader. And I mean, obviously I'm stating the obvious, but yeah. Yeah, no, he, he is. He's a really good leader and he, he takes the trouble to know all of the men Mm -hmm. by name and to keep track mentally of what is going on with them in general, you know, not every specific, but in general terms, if there are things that are going to affect the men at large, he listens and he pays attention. Um, So the losing a crew member, that's actually very soon. So first, as they're trying to escape the Acheron, they do this thing where they put out a decoy raft in the, at night, which is awesome. So great. So great. And I love the fact he chooses this younger midshipman. Um, he's like maybe a 14, 16, somewhere in there. Um, Calamy, I think his name is, mm-hmm. but he sends him out to tied up with a rope because he's like, I don't want to lose you. Um, to go and basically to put this raft out and light the the lamps on it and then to swim back to the ship so that the the Acheron will be distracted and they'll be able to slip away and it's just a great moment of his kind of leadership and mentorship the way that he entrusts this really really important task to this young boy but it's because he knows that he can do it and he and the boy trusts him enough to go do it too Mm -hmm. I mean it's a dangerous task they're literally the 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 phantom is shooting cannons at this decoy structure but the kid is like I'm going to go do it, you know? And the fact that when he gets back to the ship, Jack is like, now tell me that wasn't fun. It's such a good line. It's such a good line. It's so appropriate for the circumstances. It's so like, you know, friendly. And like, it's a way of saying you did a good job, but it's also just very, it's so appropriate for someone of his age. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. Totally. And it shows how, I don't know. it, It shows Jack's love for being on a ship too. It's like the fact that, because he, he does think it's fun, yeah. you know? Like, well, he was in that position once, and you could totally see young Jack, you know, 20 years earlier doing the exact same thing. Yeah, it's just you can see that he genuinely loves what he does. And that is a dream of mine, to be very good at what I do and also love what I do at the same time. I feel like my adult life, I've either been one or the other. I would like to be both at some point. But kudos to Jack for accomplishing that dream. <laughs> Yeah, it's the universal dream. Well, then after that, though, is um, when his job gets a bit more difficult, as you mentioned, because they're they are now behind the Akron and they're chasing her and they go around the Cape of Good Horn. But there's this huge storm that's happening. How did they hold on? How did they come to sneak up on it again? Didn't they go to the Galapagos to like restock? And then they've not yet reached the Galapagos. Something happened that helped them sneak up on the on the Phantom. What was it? it? it was the decoy. The decoy oh, you're right. allowed them, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the Acheron, to pass them, and then they were able to exactly. catch up with her. Okay, yeah. gotcha. 
Yeah, but anyway, yeah, so they're trying to chase the, the Akron now and to catch her, but there's this storm that's happening, um, and... This sequence of the storm... Oh, my goodness. I have no idea how they filmed it. It looks so good. It looks so good. It's terrifying. Like, it you could not catch is. me on a ship like that. It looks like it's about to go under at any moment. You can't catch me on a ship ever. This is why I don't go on ships, because I picture things like this, and I'm just like... There's no way in hell I'm getting on anything that has a chance of being stuck in a situation like that. People that go on cruises, I'm like, forget it. You're crazy. No, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Much, much respect to anyone who, like, this is their profession. Um, but yeah, so Worley is a, a sailor who's up. Uh, he's like, he's trying to take in the sails, I think, which is a very important thing mm -hmm. to do when you're caught in the middle of a storm and having your sails out mean your, your mast could get knocked down. And Hollem is sent up there to help him, but Hollem kind of freezes because he's just, you know, terrified, understandably. But the the sail basically is just like ripped off. Worley falls into the water. Um, the sail is in the water and it's tied by ropes to the ship and it's dragging the ship down. And so Jack has to make this incredibly difficult decision of cutting loose the sail, which um, Worley is trying to swim to, but once it's cut loose, then Worley won't be able to get back to the ship, and he drowns. And <sighs> um, yeah, everyone grieves. Like you said, Worley is really popular. He had this friend, um, Nagel, who is really upset about it. Um, and there's a really nice conversation between Stephen and Jack, where Stephen's like, "Worley was a casualty of war. You know, you this isn't your fault." I have to tell myself it's the enemy that killed them, not me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yeah, that's um, the music they use there is I had to look it up, but it's um, Fantasia on a Theme by Thomas Tallis by Ralph Vaughan Williams, which is a really beautiful, sad piece of music. Um, so, yeah, again, it's just kind of the human cost and the, the constant danger of what it is that they're doing and how capricious it can be. And you can kind of just be, you know, doing your job one moment and the next moment you're knocked into the sea and that's that's it. Ugh. Yeah, I mean, that that. I, I don't even know how to talk about it, but like that scene is just it the way it looks. I genuinely I mean, you said it, but I don't know how they shot that. Like, was that how much of that is CGI? How much of it is in a tank? Like what? Because the, the water and the waves look so real, especially that incredibly tragic shot where we see, you know, him kind of just like floating away in the water with the sail. The, I mean, it just, it all looks so real and it's, it's really awful, but, um, but yeah, it just like this movie does such a good job. Like we said before, of just establishing the stakes. And one of the reasons the stakes feel so hit, hit so close to home is because everything just feels so real. And, um, yeah, this, this sequence, I just, it's, it's probably, I mean, this might sound weird, but it's probably my favorite sequence in the whole film. It's just, it's really powerful and it looks fantastic. And like the emotions are really heightened and um, yeah, it just, it makes me feel sick to my stomach. Like seeing a young man, you know, floating out to sea in a storm and, you know, knowing that he's going to drown out there. Like it's just, it's awful. Um, but yeah, I mean, sacrifice one life for the sake of many, I guess, but doesn't make it yeah. Any easier. Yeah, yeah. Jack definitely makes the right decision, but it, it's a difficult one to, to bear on your shoulders. 
And I was just thinking, too, with what you'd said earlier about what a skillful job this movie does in having this really large cast, but also allowing you to feel like you know who each of the characters are and are able to follow them. So Worley and Nagel, Nagel were both set up earlier because Worley is actually the one who had seen the Akron being built, and he created the model that Jack has been looking at. And so for the rest of the movie, every time you see that model sitting on Jack's desk, that's also a reminder of Worley and the, the contribution that he makes to... Which is a huge contribution. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that lives on even after he is gone. What's that line like, thank God for Worley's uncle's second cousin or something? Yeah. Like that? <laughs> That's the reason that he was in Boston to see it being built is just some random relative's wedding or something that he was, yeah. he was attending. Um, all right. So after this sad moment is the Galapagos Islands. So they're, they're headed to the Galapagos. This is like, I don't know, like 30 years before Darwin was there or something like that. But clearly it's going to say 30 years later. I was like, Geneva, I'm pretty sure it's not 30 years later. They've been out on this ocean a long time. But they all look the same age. <laughs> it's a miracle. Um, yeah, so this is, yeah, sometime, something like 30 years before Darwin is going to be there. But And they um, head there to, like, repair the ship, right? So they can take some time to, like, get it back into ship shape. Well, I think the idea is that the it makes most sense for the Acheron to head there next. So they're heading there okay. because the thought is we can... Uh, find the Akron there. Okay. Um, and so Jack promises Stephen, crucially, because Stephen's really excited to get there and to be able to do his little biologist stuff and check out animals and bugs and samples and stuff. And Jack promises him that he's going to have the chance to actually do that. Um, and by this point, I think Stephen is kind of taken Blakeney under his wing as a little budding naturalist and is showing him how you... Um, create drawings and make observations of um, different species and he's teaching him how um, like evolutionary changes that bugs have made to to adapt to their surroundings to protect themselves from foes which becomes important later but yeah they get to the Acheron but what they discover there is a lifeboat of full of men who are on this whaling boat called the Albatross which had been attacked by the Acheron which means that the Acheron is still fairly nearby and they can catch up with it. So Jack basically reneges on his promise to Stephen and says, no, we're going to go after it. The, the wind is with us. We need to go after it right now. And Stephen is not happy about this. Um, he's kind of sulking on deck, which is very cute. <laughs> um, well, that's when they're all practicing, like, speeding up their their rate of like shooting cannons right mm -hmm. yeah and they're like Stephen's just drills. kind of in his little office <laughs> like looking at books and he's like Rah. he's really grumpy yeah yep. <laughs> but Blakeney comes up to him and he brings him his little beetle and he's like I think it swam over from the island so we got a Galapagos beetle here that we would never have gotten if we'd gone on the island and it's so sweet like trying <laughs> to comfort him <laughs> not getting to go to the island um um, I love I love that sequence, by the way, of of Jack kind of cheering all of them on as they're practicing their rate of shooting these cannons. And I don't know if you call if you call it reloading, if it's cannons, maybe I'm not sure. Um, but just seeing how, you know, when they first start, I think it's what, two minutes and 10 seconds or something. And then at the end of the day, it's like a minute and 34 seconds. And, you know, it's just the way that he inspires I don't know. He he just inspires hard work and loyalty and but also like 
just joy because the fact that when they all finish he's like extra rations of you know of rum or whatever it is for everybody and everyone's like absolutely thrilled and I don't know I just think that that sequence of of him just working with his men to perfect what they're doing just has this sense of like build up of like oh man they're getting better like this is really gonna be you know, a battle the next time they run into the phantom, like, wow, let's, let's, let's go. And I don't know. It just kind of amps me up a little bit. And I think it's supposed to, like he's amping up his men. Like that's the point. Um, but yeah, I, I really like that sequence a lot. Yeah. I agreed. It's great. I, I don't know how he does it, but he, the way he's able to inspire these men and men who like, you know, a lot of the officers, they're coming from more privileged classes and they've chosen their life. But a lot of these sailors might be men who were impressed into this life, and so they did not choose it. They were basically kidnapped. Or men who were maybe prisoners, or, or men who did this because they have no other recourse. This is the only career that they could find. Like, there, there are a lot of reasons for, you know, this is a very difficult life to have and, and career to have. There's a lot of risk, very little reward, but he manages to bring them together and to inspire them to do their best and to care for one another in a way that is very impressive and that is a leadership's leadership skill that some people have and is just it's very rare but whenever you do find it it's always very valuable and, and beautiful yeah i i would follow captain jack anywhere um all right so next they are running into another challenge so the they're trying to pursue the Acheron, but they're in a, I think it's called a doldrum, maybe? Oh, but the, yeah. The idea is that there's no wind, there's no rain, they're just kind of stuck. For like in the over a the week, I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, it's a, a fairly long period of time, and everyone is just kind of, they're just running through their daily routines, but they're, they're bored and they're scared and they're, they're talking. hot. They're drinking a lot, which is never good. <laughs> Um, so Nagel, the friend of Worley, the guy who was thrown overboard, he has kind of put all of his grief about his friend's death onto Holland, the officer who was trying to help him, but froze. And Holland, we've seen throughout this movie is just kind of, he's just kind of awkward. He doesn't really, he doesn't really know how to relate to the men. They kind of distrust him. They don't like him. Um... There's a weird part earlier where they're all singing and then Hollem joins in and they all drop out and kind of stare at him. Yeah, it's kind of weird. It's kind of weird because he actually has a really beautiful voice. But um, yeah, they just really dislike him and he just does not know how to fix that. And so Nagel um, consciously disrespects Hollem. He like knocks into him and Hollem doesn't do anything. So Jack sees it and he orders Nagel locked up and flogged, which is, you know, the proper Take that man military. below, clap him in irons. Yeah. It's the, you know, it's the correct military discipline for this sort of offense. Um, but Hollem is just, like, Aubrey takes him aside and is really trying to explain to him how this works. Like, you need to be firm. Like, don't be a tyrant, but you need to exact discipline and you need to preserve the hierarchy. You can't be trying to be friends with these people because you are they are under your authority and they're not going to respect you if you're too chummy with them. You need to actually, you know, lay down the law when you need to. And Helm's like, yeah, 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 I'm going to try, I'm going to try. But it's like he's 30 years old and he's still a midshipman. He just, he seems like a good 
person and he he seems to know the things he's supposed to know he just does not have the personality for this kind of life and we don't know why he's in this jack tells him too he's like he's like you're an intelligent man you know how everything works you've made the right calls you're you're good at what you do it's just you don't know how to how to be in a position of authority and he and i think that that's really important that jack points that out like this man is not an idiot like he's he's very smart he's very good at what he does and i think we see in the beginning that he makes the right call in terms of you know having everybody get ready for for battle um but jack really again because i think he really cares like he brings up to him he's like i think i don't know whatever the test is because i'm not familiar but he basically says you know you were you had the opportunity to take this test twice to move up in rank and you failed both times you're still a midshipman like what what's going on here you know and it's just very clear that Hollum doesn't have the the leadership capability just like the qualities that are needed in order for him to be in the roles that he supposedly is supposed to be in and so I it, it's really sad kind of what happens to him but you know I, I just feel like he needs to be on dry land he needs to be like a carpenter or something or a woodworker (laughs) i don't know (laughs) we never find out why it is he's at sea whether there's some you know it's family pressure or financial necessity or what it is but he's just not cut out for this position and it's just very tragic that you know he finds himself in the this role that he does not have the the personality or the skills to execute um there's a great scene where Stephen and Jack are kind of having a discussion about this whole situation because, you know, Jack, very understandably, as the captain, he understands the importance of hierarchy and discipline in this very, you know, close-knit, regimented atmosphere. He's like, this whole thing does not work unless we allow the men to have their their little pleasures. You know, they need their grog, <laughs> but they also need to understand the discipline they they need to understand that there's a ranking system here and we can't allow them to get out of line because it's really important that we preserve you know the the system in this way and then steven's coming at it from a very different angle because he's you know he's not of that military mindset he's all about the he's the idealist he's the scientist he's all about the sort of enlightenment like all men are equal individuality is important um And so, yeah, it's just a really interesting little discussion that they have. Jack has this moment where he says, men must be governed. And Stephen's like, that's the philosophy of tyrants. Of every tyrant in history. Yeah. And Jack also says something to Stephen where he says to him, like, you've come to the, like, this is not the place for anarchy or something like that. And he's very, he's really putting his foot down. And I think that that, yeah, I think that this is, maybe the one time in this movie where we see him really behaving in a way that's like, whoa, all right. Like you gotta, you gotta chill out a little bit. I mean, I see, I see where Jack's coming from. Honestly, I kind of agree with him. Um, but he, he gets pretty, he gets pretty heated. And I think, I don't think we've mentioned that the thing that they're arguing over is the fact that Jack has recognized that he has to flog. Um, I don't remember his name. Nagel. Yeah, he has to flog Nagel for how he treated Hollum, who's his ranking superior officer. And, you know, Stephen's just like, dude, these men are hot. They're bored. They've been sitting around like anyone. We're all going crazy. You know, it's it's just insubordination and we have to have mercy or whatever. Um, and, you know, Jack is saying, no, you know, we have to we have to maintain order. 
And um, again, I think that ultimately Jack does make the right decision, but unfortunately it kind of is almost counterintuitive because then it creates more of an issue towards Hollum that causes him to, you know, ultimately end his life. But um, yeah, anyway, I just think it's another, it's another example of Jack having to make difficult decisions that then could potentially lead him to a place of like, you know, regretting maybe his decisions. I'm not saying that's where he's at, but I feel like in the future he could look back on this and be like, Oh my gosh, look at all these decisions that I've made and how they affected people. Like he just has a huge responsibility and the decisions that he makes affect everyone because this is one ship where everyone is so close together. And it's like, there's no getting away from or avoiding the decisions that you're making. And you also automatically see the results of the decisions that you've made because you have nowhere else to go. Well, I think it's it's a great case where they're both right to a certain extent, mm-hmm. um, where Jack is absolutely correct about the way, you know, he, he is so experienced in the ways that ships work and the, the ways that you need to respond to certain situations in order to prevent them from getting out of control and what the men need in order to keep them going. And I think he's right it ultimately in what he decides, even though it does um, have this unintentional consequence that maybe, you know, maybe if he had recognized that Holland was struggling earlier, he could have worked to prevent this thing from happening. But I think there's also a sense in which Stephen is also right in a larger sense where even though he is, um, and I think this is kind of typical of Stephen's character, Jack is very pragmatic about the situation that's right in front of them. Stephen is more of an idealist and he's more looking at the larger picture. And so, you know, when it comes to something like stopping at the Galapagos Islands, Jack is correct that like, we're here on a mission. I can't stop for your hobbies. Like we have to go. But at the same time, there is a a legit point that Stephen's making is like, there's a larger picture here. The, the idea of advancing natural science is a really important one for humanity in general. And I, I actually, that argument that Stephen makes, it doesn't annoy me, but I'm like, dude, you're on a warship. Like, if you want to be a scientist and go, jo- like, there's probably other ships where that's the purpose of what they're doing you need to recognize what you signed up for. Like I see the point that he's making in terms of like, you're looking at the immediate reward and I'm looking at like the bigger picture and this could ultimately help us a lot down the road. And I'm like, you're right. But also you're not on the right ship to be making that argument. Like if you were, if you were on a scientist ship and they were making the argument that we need to go and then, then like you're making a good point. Absolutely. I mean, and I think that is a, that is a case where, the sort of bigger picture or longer term view is not necessarily actually the right one. I think Jack's view is the right one, but I think it's Stephen offers this alternate perspective that is kind of looking at it from a larger point of view that has something really valuable to offer, even if it's not necessarily what you need in the immediate context. Yeah. I mean, like I'm saying, or like I was saying, like I, I see the point that he's making and it's a good point. I'm just like, dude, and, and this is now is not the time. <laughs> like this is not me talking about the movie from the outside. This is like me as a person on the ship in this period of time with these men. It's like, dude, you're on the wrong ship. Like this is if that's what you want to be doing, then you need to go do that. Because here on this ship, it is a hobby what you're talking about. And if you want people to value that thing, then go be with people who value that thing. Like we don't have time for this. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Anyway, all that is to say is um so Nagel is indeed flogged. Um and Hollem there's this kind of weird decision that Hollem makes where he he hears the men whispering and he goes below deck and all the men are just they stop talking and they just stare at him and kind of like intimidatingly move up close to him and he's like wandering through the deck and is just clearly terrified and has no idea what to do and he has a complete panic attack breakdown he goes to the doctor and they're and he's like i've been cursed basically and the this whole time the sailors have been talking about the idea of a jonah which is this idea that there is a person on the ship who is divinely cursed and the only way that the ship is going to get good luck again is if we throw that we eradicate that person basically feed them to the whale Mm-hmm. so Hollum takes that into himself and so that night when he's on watch he um with blakeney poor, poor blakeney has to witness you've this. always been very kind to me i know it's so sad so Hollum grabs a cannonball and jumps off the side of the ship and he dies and um the the next day jack gives a memorial speech and he just basically says like we have kind of everyone here anyone here who has spoken ill of Hollum or has failed him in some way is guilty um like he's sort of gently shaming the men and it, it, i feel like from the looks on their faces they can they kind of feel like oh we may have gone too far i also love though cuz i feel like i feel like this is part of the culture of being you know a, a shipman during these times when people are stuck on ships for long, long periods of time, I think it's kind of known that a lot of these men started having like tell, what is it like tall tale stories or whatever it is. And they would have these superstitions and these things that they would start to believe because when you're stuck alone with the same people out at sea, like, you know, and I think it's known that people would start to come up with these sorts of things. And I find you're trying to make, to create patterns and make meaning out of everything that you, you can. Yeah, and so I find it interesting that I feel like in this sequence, we also see that Jack, even though he's being the captain and taking the role that he needs to of kind of, like you said, gently reprimanding the men for what they've done in a way that's a little bit, you know, not super like directly doing it. But then the end of this sequence, the wind returns and Jack goes, God be praised. And I think that I think it's interesting to see that Jack, yes, he's being the captain, but also like he kind of believes these things too, you know, like he's been at sea for a long time. He's seen these things happen and he kind of has some sort of belief system as well of like, yeah, there are maybe like spirits or a God who does need to be appeased and whatever, like curses are real. And I just find it really interesting that little added aspect of like, yes, he's a captain, but also he is a man stuck at sea who can get involved in these things and believe these things. And I also think that this movie begs the question of like, were they right? You know, was Hollem cursed and did they actually appease God? And that's why the wind returned. Like, I don't know, but I think the movie begs that question, you know? Yeah, definitely. There's that moment where after Hollem has gone to Stephen and said that he's cursed, Stephen tells, you know, Stephen's telling this to Jack and Jack is like, the man, the men on, they can never abide a Jonah. And Stephen's like, you don't believe this, do you? And Jack doesn't respond, or he he doesn't say no. He doesn't not not say. <laughs> he doesn't not, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think you're right. There is that interesting 
level of opening it up to interpretation of the fact that the wind returns at that very moment. And the, I mean, it's set up because the night before Blakeney mentions that Jack is pretty sure the wind is going to return that day just from his sort of, you know, longstanding sailor's instinct. But the fact that it returns at that moment, it does open that question of, is it because Hollem killed himself? Is it because Jack has brought up the the ill treatment that he received and now that that has been brought into the open there's some sort of appeasement that has been happening and like as you say you know this movie really does help you to understand and i think you know have a level of respect for the fact that when you are a sailor in the middle of the ocean and you are so much at the mercy of these gigantic forces that are completely beyond your understanding you can't predict the weather you um you know, you're completely at the mercy of the things that you find out there. It gives you a level of humility and feeling like, well, as human beings, we can't control everything. We don't know everything. And so we do um, need or at least, you know, want to reach out to something that is larger than us that can give us a level of protection or a level of understanding. Mm-hmm. For sure. So the next thing that happens, actually speaking of superstitions, there's this albatross that is circling the ship. And um, the albatross is this very um, metaphorical figure in sailing. There's um, a poem by Samuel Taylor Coleridge called The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, which basically goes off the idea that the albatross is considered good luck. And a sailor shoots an albatross in the poem and he therefore dooms the ship to bad luck. And so his fellow sailors therefore force him to wear the albatross around his neck um, as this constant reminder of the, the guilt of what he has done. But anyway, in the movie, so there's this albatross, that is, which is a bird that's circling the ship. And um, Stephen's like really excited about it. But then a soldier is trying to shoot it for some reason. And he accidentally shoots Stephen. Um, so Stephen is wounded, which is very bad. Isn't it like one of the captains who shoots him? That one guy with the white hair who's, who literally says multiple times in this movie, we could catch up to her, but to take her would be madness. Like he says it so many times. (laughs) Very intense. He's, if I remember right, it's the guy who's always wearing a red uniform, which makes me think he might be a Royal Marine as opposed to a Naval officer. Gotcha. But I'm not like trained enough in the distinctions of different uniforms to know for sure. Gotcha. Um, Anyway, he's a, he's a guy who has a gun who's on board and apparently is kind of an idiot. Yeah. So yeah, Steven is shot. Um, His mate, the doctor's mate, he doesn't really have the training or the confidence to actually perform the operation and remove the bullet. And, uh, Jack makes the decision to give up on chasing the Acheron and he returns to the Galapagos so they can actually move Stephen on shore and perform the surgery. And basically he chooses his friendship with Stephen over finally catching the Acheron. And Stephen, like a complete badass, uh, performs the surgery on himself using a mirror. Because the other doctor... He has to read up on some books. (laughs) He's just like paging through like an introductory. And and Jack is like, read up on some books. Like, what? What are you talking about? And you see him just like paging through like here, what the muscles look like. And And he's just, he looks so lost. (laughs) So I think Stephen kind of realizes like, I think I need to, to get. (laughs) <laughs> take this in charge if I want myself to live. <laughs> yep. But yeah, he performs the surgery. Uh, it's a success. He manages to heal and they all hang out at the Galapagos for a little while. Um, 
Stephen and Blakeney and this third guy, I think Padine is his name. The cook who has so much sass whenever he serves him food. <laughs> so much sass. I didn't realize that that was the cook. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, they're like going all over the island and they're collecting samples and Stephen's just in the seventh heaven. Um, but oh, oh, there's this really great moment where um, Stephen thanks Jack for, you know, taking him to shore and allow saving his life and taking him back allowing him to be on the galapagos and jack says you can thank me by naming a bush after me something prickly and hard to eradicate <laughs> yeah which is very very cute um but yeah so they're they're going all over the island they're collecting their little naturalist samples but then on the other side of the island they discover the Akron is actually sailing back into bay so it's right on the other side of the island so um they drop all their samples and they run back to the ship. Any any thoughts on this section? No, I mean, aside from the fact that I think it just further establishes how cool Steven is. I mean, the fact that he's like, yep, you got to break my rib. Yep, I got to, you know, I just, it's so, it's so good. And the fact that Jack is standing there like, I'm a captain. I've seen lots of wounds my whole life. And he's like, <laughs> he's really struggling during that surgery. Yeah, I just I love seeing the friendship between Jack and Steven. I feel like this is kind of the culmination of their friendship, this whole sequence where we really see how much Jack cares for Steven. And he does it in such a grand gesture. Um, so yeah, I mean, I like it for that reason. I think, I mean, we haven't entirely gotten to this yet. I'm assuming you would have mentioned it anyway, but I think it's really cool how we see this strategy that ultimately leads to these men being able to conquer the phantom comes from the, you know, the science that Steven has been doing on the Galapagos. Um, I just think that's a really cool connection, but yeah. The thing, the way that they balance each other out and they, like, as we said before, they respect each other and they really listen to each other and they're able to learn from each other is just, it's really beautiful. Yeah. And the music during that whole scene on the Galapagos is great. It's just a bunch of like string pieces. I don't know who the composer is, but um, it's really great. Yeah. I'm not sure. But yeah, the music throughout this whole movie is just really, really great. Um, so yeah, I wanted to kind of like talk about this whole section together because it's just one big action set piece. But basically, um, so now that they know where the Akron is, um, they're, they're headed around to go and catch up with it. And while they're on their way, um, uh, Stephen's like, Stephen Blakeney are kind of sharing their findings with Jack. And they mention the stick bug, which disguises itself to confuse its predators. And Jack's like, ding, 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 little light bulb goes off. So he orders the surprise to be repainted so that it looks like a whaling ship. And everyone like puts on like big overcoats over their uniforms so they look like whalers and jack's like all right everybody stop referring to me as sir and they're all like yes sir and he's like we're gonna work on that yep which is funny uh jack also assigns which is very cute he assigns calamy this really important job who's the, the like teenage officer um this really important job once they have caught up with the akron and have boarded her of going downstairs and freeing prisoners and Blakeney learns that he's not going to be in the landing party and is really sad. But then Jack is like, that's because you're going to be in charge of the ship once I've gone on the landing so party. So cool. I love how he says there's there's two times in this movie where Jack does that. And both times they're awesome. This is the first time where he's like, yeah, when we get over to the other side, you're going to command the ship. And then the next time is after they conquer the Phantom. And he tells Pullings like, yeah, so uh, you're going to be the one taking the ship and doing the thing. Captain Pullings. <laughs> and Pullings like, what? 
cool. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've we've mentioned this before, but I just wanted to emphasize how much I love the recurring theme throughout this movie of Jack really taking the time to mentor and encourage and give responsibilities and feedback to his underlings. Like, he's not just... He's not all about making myself look cool. He's all about let me bring up the younger generation and share my knowledge with them so that they can, you know, hopefully achieve to the best of their ability um, the things that I've achieved. And it's just, it's such a great quality. It's such a great character beat every time it happens. Um, seeing the way that all of these things have come together, like all the different things that he's taught Calamy and Blakeney over the course of the movie now culminating in them having these really pivotal roles to play in this battle is just so um satisfying and yeah i love it so much i mean you can tell that he's been there like he he knows he understands what it means as that sort of you know person of that rank to be told by by this person who is him that he's moving to another rank like like he knows that experience and he knows how much that means and i think he he does it in ways that he knows is going to make them feel the most excited about it, you know? And I also love, we actually didn't talk about this, but earlier on when, um, when I think it's that scene when Jack makes the really not that funny lesser of two weevils joke, when we see, um, I think it's Calamy who wants to hear about stories about this like legendary oh, yes. captain that Jack served under at one time. Lord, Lord Nelson. Yeah. And everyone at the table, or I guess they start with kind of cracking jokes about him because, you know, Jack has two stories about him. The first one is they ate dinner and, you know, the captain asked him like, Aubrey, can you pass the salt? You know? And, <laughs> and of, that was it. <laughs> and of course they all think it's super funny because they're all super drunk, but and then he recognizes that Calamy is like upset that this is the story that he told because he has such a high reverence for this person who's almost like a celebrity to him. And Jack clocks it and he's like, okay, this really means something to this kid. So I need to like tell him something that's really going to like inspire him and help him really see this person that he reveres so much as a real man and, and you know, whatever. And I just think it's really cool how Jack does that you know he really just again like I said before I feel a strong sense that he remembers what it was like to be these men at each individual stage and he steps back into their shoes and he's like how can I inspire them where they're at you know and I mean that's freaking good leadership right like people who get to a point of power but recognize all they had to go through to get there and where they've been and not just getting so like power hungry with but it's like no they remember and they have humility of where they came from um yeah yeah he's a good captain <laughs> yeah i am so so glad that you brought that up because i actually really wanted to talk about it and then i somehow completely skipped over it when i was summarizing that part but yeah i love that scene and i love the fact that the story that he tells about meeting lord nelson too is like it's something about how lord nelson like he refused to wear a coat because he said his zeal for king and country kept him warm. Mm -hmm. And Stephen is kind of like rolling his eyes. He's like, yeah, sure, sure. Okay. But Jack has this great moment where he's like, like, yeah, no, I, I understand that that's cheesy. But somehow coming from that man, like having known this man and spent time in the same room with him, I completely believed it. And there's just this shot of Calamy and you can just see him like the kid does such a 
whatever the the name of the actor who plays this kid is, he does such a good job or you he's just glowing, you know? And it's this sense of like this person who he admires, you know, this sort of um you know, this far off figure of Lord Nelson is just he just has so much admiration and reverence to him. You know, he's such a hero to him. And Jack himself is, you know, kind of also occupying that place for him. And it's just, you know, heroes have their a really important place in our lives in kind of inspiring us to be better and inspiring us toward greater things. And I don't think, you know, obviously that can very easily tip over into an idol worship that you know, refuses to accept the fact that our heroes are also flawed human beings and that they have their darker sides. You know, it, it's not good to to dismiss ev- everything that is bad about a person and, and ignore that and just focus on the good. But I think there is a really important place that our our heroes and our mentors and the people that we look up to can serve in inspiring us to do better. And it's Nelson did that for Jack, and now Jack is doing that for Calamine. And it is this really, really sweet cycle that is this kind of um, running theme throughout this movie. Good leaders inspire good leaders. Mm -hmm. So speaking of good leadership, um, the crew of the Surprise, they've disguised the ship as a whaling ship. Aubrey gives this really inspiring speech where he he basically lays out the entire plan, who's going to be where, what they're going to do step by step. And then he ends and he says, England is under threat of invasion. And though we be on the far side of the world, this ship is our home. This ship is England. And it's just, you know, again, this really the right thing to say at the right time of kind of bringing everyone together and reminding them of what they are fighting for in this particular context that they are finding themselves in and giving them something to hold on to in terms of motivating them to to keep going. I think I think a lot of people it it seems based off of the little bit of internet and letterboxed you know searching I did after watching this movie a lot of people seem to really connect with that line of this ship is home this ship is England I I I think it's a good line but for me it's not like whoa this is the line of the movie but so many people like this is the line of the movie I'm like okay maybe it's because I don't have any like strong feelings towards the country of England but (laughs) that's interesting I didn't realize that that would be the line I'm just not really a patriotic person either like I'm not really like this ship is home. This ship is America. It's like, well, I think it's that idea that this is a line that you could universalize. You know, this is a line where you could replace it. You know, this ship is our home. You could say this ship is America, but you could also say like, this ship is my family. This ship is my community. This ship is the people that I care about, the the home that I love, that I want to protect. Yeah. If I think about it, in that way it makes sense like if I were on a ship and we said this ship is home this ship is Chicago like that would that yeah I guess I get it in that way Chicago feels more like home to me than America even though Chicago's in America but whatever <laughs> yeah yeah it's the it's the feelings the mindset the um the the love that you feel for um the the place that you're from that mm-hmm. is the, the important thing there yeah all right so um yeah so battle ensues so the um as planned, the Akron try and take over this quote-unquote whaling ship, but surprise, it's not a whaling ship. Um, Aubrey uh, gives the word, they roll out the cannons, all the soldiers jump up, and there's just this huge battle that ensues. They're firing on each other. Um, they manage to take down the Akron's main mass, uh, mast. Aubrey and Polings lead a couple of landing parties over to the other side. Um, 
match her. Uh, Steven is um, sword fighting, which who knew that he could sword fight? Uh, he does a great job. Um, Calamy does his job. He frees the, the prisoners who are below deck. Um, Blakeney is leading people on the surprise. And yeah, they win. The, the crew of the Akron surrender. I just want to note that uh, their their training paid off. That sequence where they were kind of timing themselves to shoot cannons faster paid off here because they had a limited amount of time and they all aimed at the mast and they all shot their cannons super quickly. And that was basically it. I mean, after you do that, it's like, okay, I mean, we have to sword fight, but the, like, the, the main job is done, you know? And um, also we didn't mention either that like the the French have their own type of disguise where they all get onto the ship and all of the French people are playing dead on the ground and that's then, right yeah and then they hop up and they're like oh wait no we're still alive and we're gonna fight you now <laughs> but yeah I remember I thought that was interesting the first time I watched this movie because again like this movie shows so many different fighting tactics for people that you know, we're working in this type of ship environment. It's like, wow, you can make decoy structures and put lanterns on them and you can shoot at masts and you can pretend and disguise yourself as something else. You can play dead. You can, it's like you could do anything, you know? And I just thought it was cool how they kind of employed all of these different, um, all these different tactics throughout the movie. So. Well, and I find it so funny that. The, oh, and you the can main... fake being a doctor. <laughs> like, yes. <laughs> you know, it's like, there's so many things that they do here. Yeah. And like, the um the main villain of the movie the captain of this french ship i find it so fascinating that you don't meet him until the very end and even at that moment you don't actually know that he's the captain so you basically never meet him in his capacity as captain and yet you do have this really strong sense of who he is in the fact that he is so well matched with aubrey he he's also very resourceful he's full of tricks he's full of um you know, wisdom about when to, when to attack and when not to, when to withdraw. And, um, yeah, it, it just makes me all the more sad that we never got a sequel where they finally get to meet face <laughs> to face. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see 2023. Something Russell tells Crow. me this will get revived. This, this will, this will get revived in like 15 years and it'll be, I think it'll happen. There's going to be some sort of like, I don't know, Amazon Prime reboot with the younger cast doing the novels, and it probably won't be very good. Because if there's one thing that Amazon's great at, it's rebooting <laughs> successful content. What are you talking about? Nothing but success. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, so yeah, all, all that is to say is they win, but they, they can't find the captain. And Aubrey comes upon the ship's doctor, who is apparently has been operating on the captain, but the captain's just died. And he gives up the sword. And um, so everything's all sorted out. All the, the crew of the Akron are in prison and they're being sent off to, um, I think it's like a port in Chile. And he promotes pullings. Uh, he promotes pullings to captain, to captain the Acheron there. And it's such a sweet moment. Pullings is so, he like, I was a little like, who did he think was going to captain the ship? Maybe he just wasn't expecting the promotion, but he's just, he's so excited and so happy. And Pullings has like, he's been there at Jack's side the entire time. And you can see that he's competent. Like he, oh, they, totally. the two of them clearly have a long history and he has learned from the best and he's really good. But this is the first time he's had a chance to be on his own and prove himself. And he's just so excited and 
everyone's so happy for him and it's very sweet. And also this movie's really reactivating my James Darcy crush, which is a long-standing crush of mine. So it's just a personal note. Oh, that is, that's really funny. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I don't, sorry, mm-hmm. something that came to my mind, it's really dumb, but I'm going to yeah. say it anyway. Um, there are a few shows, Brooklyn Nine-Nine being one of them, where there is this clip from a production company at the end where I don't remember who says it, but someone goes, not a doctor. Shh. <laughs> I don't know if you know what I'm talking about, but if there's I have anyone, zero idea what you're talking about. If there's anyone about. listening to this that has watched Brooklyn Nine-Nine, you know what I'm talking about. But for some reason that just came into my head right now, because the doctor of the Phantom is not actually the doctor. Not a doctor. And not a doctor. Shh. But anyway, That's it's, like I said, it was incredibly dumb, but it came to my mind. So there you go. There you go. Um, all right. Oh, one thing that I, I didn't mention here that we should mention is that Calamy, unfortunately, is killed in this battle. And um, as as is Nagel. Um, but Blakeney sh- sews up Calamy's canvas and... Um, and Mr. Allen, too. Oh, that's right. Yeah. The, the guy who's, if we can take her, that yeah. guy dies. Yeah. I think he's he's the one who usually starts the singing when they're uh, singing. Uh-huh. Oh, did you mention that uh, that Jack says that their ship, they're going to go back to the Galapagos? Did I miss that? Oh, that's right. No, I, I hadn't mentioned that. Yeah. So the plan is that Pulling is going to, Pullings is going to sail the Acheron back to this port and then Jack and the Surprise are going to chill in the Galapagos for a few more days and give Steven a chance to hang out there f- some more, recollect his samples. Find his bird. Find his bird, yes. But it turns out as they're playing music that evening, Jack puts it together that the uh, doctor who uh, of the um, Acheron had actually died, which means that the captain was actually the doctor that he met. So the captain is still alive, still out there, still dangerous. So he decides, nope, re-diverting. We're going to follow after the Acheron and figure all that out. Steven's like, of course. Again? <laughs> like I said, Steven, go join a scientist ship. <laughs> But also don't do that because we need your expertise as a doctor. Yes, yes. We need you in the same room as um as Jack. But yeah, so the movie ends kind of on a an open note. You know, they're they're following after. We trust that they're gonna sort it out, but still still some unfinished business there, and they're just playing music together as the they sail off. It's a beautiful song. It's a absolutely beautiful song. It's oh. gorgeous. It's very jaunty. Um it's kind of different from what they've played before. Mm-hmm. But it's, I mean, all the, all the music in this movie is so, so beautiful. Good. Yeah. So that's the end. Um, all our friends sail off into the distance <laughs> for more adventures. They live happily ever after. They live happily ever after. Um, yeah. So are there any other points that you wanted to discuss about this movie overall or any moments that we kind of skipped over? I don't think so. I think we pretty much touched on everything. Um, there's just one final thing that kind of occurred to me before to bring up. It, it's like a little thing, but it's just, it's another aspect of Jack that I was like, ah, there's just certain things that you say that are really cool. They shouldn't be cool, but they are. But it's this, the, um, the sequence when they like put out the decoy thing and then the phantom kind of follows it and is shooting at it. And then, you know, the surprise is like, okay, we're going to go in this other direction and get away from them. And then after, you know, X amount of time, Jack looks at, I'm sorry, I'm going to call him Pippin. Jack looks at Pippin and he's like, that's enough Westing. 
let's or that's enough easting let's go south southwest and we're like oh yeah let's go south south and then <laughs> oh crap <laughs> and then pippin's like i sir south southwest <laughs> i'm like yes let's do it this is awesome <laughs> Again, shouldn't be cool. Just someone saying stop going east and start going southwest. But, but it's super Just cool. the way he delivers it. Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't give any appreciation for... Um, so when they're going around the, the Cape and they're like, they have to go even further south. So like almost to Antarctica and it's like snowy and, you know, miserable. And then they're finally going to turn north again, and they celebrate with this little cake that they oh. created that looks like uh-huh. the Galapagos Island, and I, they're all very tipsy. But Jack is so delighted. He about is this cake. so drunk. <laughs> oh my gosh! When he takes a little ship and just like shoves it, he just like shoves it in his mouth, and he's like slicing up the islands, like here you take this rock and you take that cape, and <laughs> Steve is just like, what is happening? It looks so gross. It's, it's like yeah. Ugh. But it's just like this weird chocolate mousse that, um, ugh, yeah, looks nasty. Yeah, you know, you got to find your fun somewhere. So can I can I make my case now for this being a sports movie? Oh, please, please. Okay, so like I said before, they've added on a couple other things that kind of break out of the you know typical sports movie mold. But and I'm also speaking about sports movies that are specifically men's sports because unfortunately most sports movies highlight men's sports and not women's sports, but. So, first of all, we've got a group of men that are kind of assembled onto a team with a common goal. If they weren't on this team, they otherwise probably wouldn't interact much. But because they have this thing in common and they're working towards a goal, they all have to learn how to, like, band together to win what they want to win. And it's us versus them. It's our team versus their team. And sometimes, sports, they are fighting for things that are more noble, like, not you know, as opposed to just competition. But like we see that with some sometimes in the Olympics and we're, you know, we're fighting against Germany or whatever it might be. Like sometimes it is fighting for things that are more symbolic of like, like us versus them in a way that's more like more personable as opposed to just like, oh, it's my team and I want my team to win, even though that's valid. It's incredibly valid. Um, But so it has a dynamic of like, good versus evil us versus them we're gonna fight them we're gonna beat them we're all on a team for this common purpose we have a great coach who like brings us all together and like sometimes certain people get cut from the team and it's really hard but the coach has to do it because they cut know... from the team with quotation marks I love yeah it. yeah but like they have to be cut from the team because like it's not for the greater good and like it's really hard because we want them to be there but we know like either all of our spots are full and we don't have enough space left or or whatever it might be or you're injured and you can't play anymore like there's always people that are on the team but for for whatever reason they can't continue whether that means they're cut or they get injured or whatever and it's always an emotional beat of like this person has invested all the time they formed this camaraderie with their teammates but now they can no longer continue for whatever reason we have the quintessential rallying speech at the end where the coach is like hey hey guys so I know that we've been preparing for this for a long time we know that we're up against a big competition but you know what we're going to take them and we're going to win. And you know why? <laughs> because this, 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 and this, and we're going to win for 
rah, and everyone goes, wah, yeah, we're going to go out, we're going to play, and we're going to win now. Like this whole rallying speech that every, gets everyone super hyped to then go play the game, and then, of course, the team wins, and hooray, and whatever. It's just... Like I said, there's added things like scientists. We also have the common thing of like there's a coach and there's an assistant coach that disagrees with the decisions that the coach is making and it creates conflict. Sports teams have this dynamic of ranking. It's like we have the coach, we have the assistant coaches, we have the captain, we have the assistant captains, we have the players. And for me, even thinking about hockey, it's like everyone has their own position. There's the center. There's the right wing. There's the left wing. There's the right defense, the left defense. There's the goalie. There's this is how you behave when you're one man down and you're penalty killing versus when you're power playing and you have the upper hand and like different strategies. And this movie is a sports movie. I'm sorry. It just is like and (laughs) the reason I say that is because I know that this movie connects with you a lot and I'm just trying to show that like a lot of these themes here that connect with that connect you to this movie also exist in sports films. <laughs> and so the way that you feel about this movie is similar to how people who like sports movies feel when they watch sports movies. Obviously, this movie is not directly a sports film. There's other added things, but like a lot of a lot of themes are there that are very similar. And I would say that there are more themes present that are similar than not. So anyway, that's my case. First of all, I, I love that you've made that case. I love that for you. Um, second of all, I feel like you could make that same argument about 75% of war films and just say Ooh. every war film is a sports film, which to me is the other way around. You should say every sports film is a war film. Interesting. I'll have to think about that. I wouldn't say every sports film is a war film, but... Uh, yeah, that's really interesting. Hmm. Also a good number of Westerns. Just going to throw that out there. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. I'm just trying to help you like sports movies. I want to try and help you like Westerns. <laughs> this is the lens in which I watch movies now. How like how can I get Geneva to like sports movies? That's how I watch everything now. Is there some way I can manipulate this to convince Geneva? Can you make this movie not about a sport? No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anyway um yeah yeah well I, I i love it i will i will chew on that all right uh well if there's nothing else that we wanted to talk about we can move on to the critical response to this movie so as i mentioned unfortunately this movie at the time was not really a financial success i don't think it was really a big would necessarily be called a flop but it did not make it was not the kind of hit that they would have wanted for the amount of budget that was put into it um there were some other huge movies that year that really I mean Pirates of the Caribbean The Return of the King like that was the year of Finding Nemo um X2 Elf um or all that year like 2003 was a really big year for movies and this movie just kind of got drowned out but it was a critical hit very much so uh Rotten Tomatoes currently has it as it should have been agreed Rotten Tomatoes currently has it at 85%. Metacritic has it at 81 Um, I've pulled two critic reviews. So first, our, our good friend Roger Ebert. Um, he gave this movie four stars, as well he should. And um, in part he wrote, Master and Commander is grand and glorious and touching in its attention to its characters. Like the work of David Lean, it achieves the epic without losing sight of the human, and to see it is to be reminded of the way great action movies can rouse and exhilarate us, can affirm life instead of similar, sim, uh, simply dramatizing its destruction. I love that last part. That's great. 
I agreed. Yeah, I thought that was very insightful. And then secondly, I pulled a review from uh, a woman named Stephanie Zacharek. Um, I didn't note where this was from. I want to say it was Salon, but um, anyway, Stephanie Zacharek. And she writes, As O'Brien wrote him and as Crow plays him here, Jack Aubrey is a man who makes you understand some of the intricacies of heroism. Jack's heroism isn't just a crazy willingness to, say, run an adversary through with a sword. As Crow plays him, he makes you understand that bravery is only the half of it, or maybe even less. The better part of Jack's talent may lie in inspiring so much confidence in his men. Heroes are almost impossible to play, partly because heroism, so affecting in real life, always manages to seem both tinny and overblown by the time it's poured onto a movie screen. But Crow plays a character and not an ideal. Crow's version of heroism is affable and human, never hokey or forced. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, so I, I, I like that. I think she just, you know, kind of continuing similar themes that we were discussing um, about this character. And, and I think Russell Crowe really does an incredible job of, of bringing him to, to life. So that, that review actually reminded me of something that I just wanted to bring up real quick. Oh, please. Um, So... Russell Crowe was one of the first actors that I genuinely really followed because when I was old enough to actually start like watching movies that weren't kids movies, he was at like his peak. And so I just want to say from from 2000 to 2007, he was in Gladiator, A Beautiful Mind, Master and Commander, Cinderella Man, American Gangster and 310 to Yuma and that is an incredible seven years like the fact that he was so strong for so long and I know certain people they have conflicting feelings about Beautiful Mind Gladiator whatever whatever that might be true but there is no denying in my opinion that his performances in those movies are absolutely great and um and I just think it's man he was at such a high high and in my opinion ever since that time he's never really made a movie that I've enjoyed nice guys was fine but he's never reached that peak again and again we don't need to go super into this because it's a tangent and we need to end the episode but I was just thinking that like it it, I don't know it's it really is fascinating to me how you can be a super super famous actor for a certain amount of time and then not really be relevant anymore. And it's so crazy how that happens. And it's really an accomplishment when actors are able to sustain that for a really long time, because it's actually not that common. And uh, I would love to have Russell Crowe have a comeback and like just start pumping out incredible performances and incredible movies. But I don't know if it's his fault, if it's his agent's fault. I don't know what's going on, but like, He's had like 15 really bad years. Well, and to be fair to or to be clear, you know, he's been working. It's oh, it's he's just working, that the quality yeah. of movies by and large is not what it was in those early years of the the 2000s. He's been around and I I love the nice guys. I think he's terrific in that and I really love that movie. But um in the years especially since it's I mean, some things that I just don't recognize, so maybe they're good and I'm just not aware, but also some things I'm like, ooh, that's, you can, you can do a lot better. Yeah, I just think it's crazy how you can be an actor at one point where everyone's like, I'm going to go see that movie because so-and-so is in it. And then it gets to a point and it's like, ugh, 
he's in that like <laughs> you know well, that's, or like that's just the na- because... nature of the fickle nature of hollywood fame i know that's what i'm saying like it's really interesting how that can happen and it's a real accomplishment when a- actors are able to sustain that for a long period of time but he's probably living off that money for the rest of his life though like well you know, i mean i was gonna say he's I... acting for the love of it at this point he doesn't need the money <laughs> Yeah, I mean, maybe he's having a great time with the the things that he was doing. There's that uh, picture of him in the Pope's Exorcist on that little moped going around. He just, <laughs> uh-huh. he just looked like he was having a, a blast. So yep. you know, if he's ha- if he's happy doing what he's doing, you know, no disrespect, but um, he is a great actor who's who's capable of really great performances. So it would, it would be nice to see to get a few more of those. Um, in terms of awards and legacy for Master and Commander, so this movie actually it really got some some love at the oscars in terms of nominations it was nominated for 10 oscars so best picture best Lost director all of them to return of the king <laughs> <laughs> best picture best director best art direction best cinematography best editing best costume design best makeup best sound editing best sound mixing and best visual effects of those it only won two best cinematography which i well deserved in my opinion i agree and best sound editing but yes, apart from that, as you said, it this was the year that Return of the King was sweeping um, kind yeah. of a cumulative, yeah. you know, <laughs> awards for all three of the Lord of the Rings movies and well deserved. You know, I don't begrudge it any of those wins. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm very glad that Master Commander got as much recognition as it got even. I feel like 2003 was definitely a year where you could say it's an honor just to be nominated because no one was going to win I'm sorry like so the fact that you were nominated basically was winning you know and yeah so it's no shame on this movie at all how can you win when you're going up against a perfect film the most perfect (laughs) film of all time and the best movie ever made I mean Mm -hmm. there's no chance so I'm glad this movie was recognized in lots of ways I think that's great all right. So, final thoughts. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I'm I'm really glad that it, to have a chance to revisit this movie again, um, and I look forward to watching it many more times in the future. This really is a movie where the setting is so small and so contained, and yet because of that, I feel like it can say so much about the world at large and about human nature and how about the way that systems of uh, humanity and community operate. Um, it's just something I love. I mean, it's something I love about Westerns. A lot of what I love about this movie is something I also love in Westerns. Um, but it, yeah, in, in this movie, it's just, I think it's, it's very insightful about, um, certain things. It has a lot to say about, um, heroism, about leadership, about, um, teaching and training and caring about others. And it's also just a really fun, well-paced exciting action movie as both of us have said it's really really well made it puts you in that time and place um it has this really epic sweep that uh and this um you know texture and feel of reality that you you don't often get from big budget movies today so i yeah i love revisiting this movie and i'm so glad it exists tatum what about you last thoughts Yeah, so I mean, like I said earlier, this is a movie where when I was younger, I watched this movie all the time. So I don't think that this rewatch has necessarily inspired me to go watch it a bunch because I've seen it so many times. Um, But yeah, I think that's something that really stuck out to me this time because it's been a hot minute since I've watched it. It was really nice watching this movie in in 2023 because I feel like I've gotten 
as all of us have, you know, we've been so drowned in movies that are all CGI that it really stuck out to me a lot more, the practical effects in this and how well done it is and how impressive it is that they pulled this off. Um, and I wish that I wish that filmmakers would watch things like this and be like, oh, yeah, we can still do this. Let's try it. And probably film studios, too. It's probably more so the studios and the filmmakers, to be honest. I don't know. But um, I don't know. It was just a lot more. Uh, I don't know. I was just filled with a lot more awe watching it because just comparing it to the stuff that is made now, it's just a lot more impressive, in my opinion. Um, not this is not me poo-pooing CGI. Like it's hard work. It can be done really well and look phenomenal. And CGI has pushed us forward in certain ways in the art of cinema that would not have otherwise been possible. And I'm very grateful for that. But I also think sometimes CGI is employed way more than it needs to be. And it's nice to see a movie like this that really stands out and is really impressive in how it tackles these things. So yeah, it looks great. Um, and also I, I felt Felt this way about this movie for a long time, but the soundtrack is is great. I don't think my feelings about that will ever change. It's just, it's really fantastic. So, yeah. Great. Yeah. And yeah, thank you for, that's a good point about CGI, that it, it does have its its value and its place and can be very um, effective and allow you to do things that you could not have done before. Um, and it's, it's amazing when it's well deployed, but especially I think in this sort of immediate, you know, you look at the, the, Pirates of the Caribbean sequels and and the way that CGI is deployed there and it's just kind of we have the technology but we haven't really figured out how to harness it and so maybe we're doing it a little in ways that are not really helpful to the reality of this movie but we can even see that across the arc of the uh uh the Middle Earth movies that we've seen mm. yeah going from the Lord of the Rings movies to the Hobbit movies yeah mm-hmm. yep yep it's a good yeah. point and no disrespect to the artists who work very hard on those. They do their best. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, Tatum, do you want to tell the people what we're going to be talking about next episode? Yeah. So speaking of movies that have really great music, uh, next week we will be watching a film that I really love. I've actually only seen it recently. I watched it for the first time about a year and a half ago. Um, and it's such a... It's such a fun, pleasant, beautiful, just magical watch. That's kind of the word I used to describe it. This movie is magical. Um, and it just takes you somewhere else that's just beautiful. So we will be watching Begin Again from 2013, made by one of my favorite directors. Um, so, yeah, stick around for that. It's a really beautiful uh musical by my definition i guess we'll find out next week if it's a musical by geneva's definition but <laughs> i decided yeah. to have that conversation because i do have very um picky definitions of what a musical is or isn't um yeah but anyway that's what we're talking about next week awesome all right very excited about that all right thanks so much for listening everybody until next time bye Thanks for listening. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at yourpickpod at gmail.com. Our theme song was composed by Joel Rushton, and our podcast graphic was designed by Kara Shin. If you like this show and want to hear more, please rate and subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We're excited to have you on this journey with us. Until next time.